because I know how hard it is to make a full-time living writing novels, that's an amazing accomplishment. Be really proud of yourself. So many of our authors are also teachers who write during summers, that sort of thing. So the fact that you can do it full time, Rosie, that's amazing. Thank you. This is a production of JetWit.com. Special thanks to US Jet AA and Claire for their support. Hello, and welcome to the Jetosphere podcast, the podcast about things related to the Jet Alumni Association community broadly defined. I'm Stephen Horowitz. I was an ALT in Aichiken Kariyashi from 1992 to 1994. So today on the show, we have two wonderful jets, both in the writing world. The first is Alexei Esikoff, who is in New York and works for a big publisher. And the other is Roseanne A. Brown, who is based in DC and writes children's literature. So welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Happy to be here. <laughs> okay. So before we get further into the episode, I'm excited to share the first ever ad on the Jetosphere podcast. And I want to give a special thanks to DSA International for being our first advertiser. So without further ado, let me share some words from them and in particular from Tanaka Emisan. DSA International is a consulting and recruiting firm with connections to companies all over the world. If you're in the job market, we'd love to review your resumes and connect you with our clients' positions that would best suit your career search criteria. All positions are full-time, direct hire positions. If you're interested in our services, we'd love to work with you. We have placed many JET candidates with major Japanese and American corporations. Please direct your resume as a Word document to the following email, jobs at dsajobs.net. That's jobs, J-O-B-S, at dsajobs.net. And in the subject line, put, attention, Jetosphere Podcast dash Tanaka 2022. And this will all be in the show notes. Attention, Jetosphere Podcast dash Tanaka 2022. So that goes in the email subject line. Or you can also call them at 626-403-6400. Again, that'll be in the show notes. Uh, side note, uh, DSA International is on the West Coast, so their time zone is USA Pacific time. Also, if you're looking to hire, you can also call Tanaka-san and send her your job description. And lastly, Tanaka-san says, we look forward to working with you. So thanks, DSA International. And now back to the episode. So let's see. Let's get to know both of you first. I'm going to start off with Alexei because I have known Alexei a long time. And I'm going to say whatever I think I know about her. And she's going to correct me and fill in the blanks. And then we'll, we'll do the same with Roseanne. Okay. So Alexei, you're in New York, correct? Correct. And I know you because you started back when I was the editor of the Jetta New York newsletter in the, in the aughts, in the 2000 aughts, when it was in print still, and it was something we printed out, you started writing. You became one of, my, one of the main writers for the newsletter. Yeah, that's true. And I am dating myself because, of course, that's <laughs> back in the early aughts. <laughs> uh, uh, I came back from Japan in, in 2002, 
And I came to New York and I didn't know where to start. And you had an ad, I, if I recall saying you needed writers. And you were a writer. Trying to be. Yeah. And so, and then if I've got it right, you were in Fukushima, right? I was in Fukushima. So of course so. that was before the meltdown and the tragedy that happened over there. And you were there from 2003 to 2004? No, I was actually there. I actually moved there right before September 11th. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you were there so, 2001, 2002. Yeah, I okay. was. And, and what part of Fukushima were you in? Fukushima-shi, uh, center of the prefecture up in the mountains. And, and now you work as a editor for the publishing company Bloomsbury. Is that right? No, that was a few no. jobs ago. No, it's been a little while. <laughs> okay. I am a managing editor for Macmillan Publishing, specifically in their kids group, and more specifically than that, for their imprint, Henry Holt and Company. Oh, okay. Well, I've heard of Macmillan. I think most people know Macmillan. Henry Holton, I don't yeah. know. Henry Holt? Henry Holt. Tell us a little bit more about Henry Holt. Not the person, uh, Henry, but, the, but the imprint. Well, so I'm not sure if people understand how imprints work, but they're kind of like smaller divisions within a large publishing umbrella. So in this case, Macmillan Publishing is the big umbrella. The smaller umbrella is CPG, which is Macmillan Children's Publishing Group. And then even smaller within that is the imprint that I work on, which we just call Holt. And I specialize in kids' books for all ages, everywhere from board books for newborns to vampire sex romances for 17-year-olds. I thought you were going to say for newborns. Also for newborns. Definitely for newborns. They're really, they're really good vampires. <laughs> oh, gosh. And, and let's see. So... In addition to being a managing editor, I think that you also enjoy singing. I have been known to hit a karaoke bar, yeah. I will say COVID, it, I, since COVID's happened, I've only gone a handful of times. So you really have to be careful who you're going to be in that room with. Yeah, you got to pick carefully. Does it? Do, do you think it matters which song you pick, or is it more about the people you go with? Oh, it's or definitely more songs, about are certain songs more likely to spread COVID than other songs? I guess if you're doing a lot of th sounds, maybe. Okay, so a lot of plosives. Yes. If you, have, if, you, if you pick a song with a lot of plosives, that's, that's yeah. a little riskier. And if I recall correctly, you have training going back in opera? In our operatic oh, singing? That's, when, <laughs> when I, I, when I first kid, met I, you, you mentioned that. When I, was, when I was a teenager, I did take voice lessons. Yeah, I do have a very big set of lungs which comes in handy when you're leading meetings of 30 people. Though, of course, since COVID, it's also all been Zoom meetings. Is, it, is, the, is the big voice still an advantage even on Zoom meetings? Less so, gets, but it was it definitely gets, an advantage pre-pandemic. Uh, pre <laughs> and now let's, let's see, uh, with Rosie, I know, I think I know less than I know about Alexei, but I'm going to do my best anyway. Rosie, we recently met at a Jeddah DC event. 
my first mm -hmm. in-person Jetta DC event. And was that your first Jetta DC event as well? Yeah, it was. And and I think you're originally from Maryland. Is that right? Yep, lived there for like twenty-ish years before I went to Japan. And what what part of Maryland? So I was like about halfway between Baltimore and DC, sort of near the Columbia area. And then when you went to Japan, where did you go, and what what years were you? So I was in Nomishi in Ishikawa Prefecture, and I was there from 2017 to 2019. So I got oh, wow. back right before the pandemic started. That, excellent timing, really excellent. <laughs> Although, was it would it have been better to be back during the pandemic, or or do you think it would have been better if you had stayed another year in Japan and then the pandemic happened and you were there in the middle? Honestly, I keep going back and forth on that because I definitely there were times I'm like, oh man, Japan's numbers look so much better. I should have been over there. And other times I'm like, oh no, like this, like I hear the stories from my friends who are still there, and I'll be like, actually. I'm probably better off here. So I truly don't know the answer to that. It flips back and forth. And then another thing I know about you is that you, well, for another, one thing I just learned about you is <laughs> that there's a lot of other Roseanne Browns out there. So yeah. it's important if you want to Google Rosie to look for Roseanne A. Brown, if you ever want to <laughs> see her work or anything like that. But you, you write children's literature and i think some of what you write is for graphic novels like black panther yes so i actually write primarily prose but so for me my debut novel a song of rates and ruin is a y fantasy novel it was a new york times bestseller and i like to describe it to people as what would happen if you took sort of game of thrones and set it in africa for teenagers and it's about two teens who have to kill each other to save their families. So that came out June 2nd, 2020. And then the sequel, oh, wow. Assam. Yeah, it was right in smack in the pandemic. The sequel, um, Assam of Storms and Silence, just came out this past November. So that was my first series. And then right now, what I have coming up, I have my first graphic novel, which will be with Marvel and Scholastic on April 19th. It's Shuri and T'Challa Into the Heartlands. And so... That's a Black Panther prequel graphic novel about the characters Shuri and T'Challa. People know them from the movies, but it's from a time when they're kids. And it's kind of about them and their sibling relationship as they go on a quest to save their mother. But also, they don't really like each other. So it was really fun to like explain, explore these characters as kids and to kind of show who they were before they're like the characters everyone knew from the movies. And then my most recent thing I'm working on right now is I have my middle grade debut coming out this fall with Rick Ryder. That's Farewell Boateng's Guide to Vampire Hunting, which I describe what would happen if you mix Buffy with Mean Girls and <laughs> set it on a backdrop of Ghanaian folklore. So yeah, those are kind of like my big projects at the moment. Oh, this is really exciting. And Alexa, I can see you nodding your head in recognition of some of these names and references. Yeah, I, I, I am aware of the Song of Wraiths and Ruin. And I, I actually just looked it up and was excited to see you published through Balzer and Bray. I used to work at HarperCollins. I love them. No, they are so, like, I have my editor is Kristen Renz, who is one of Hi. the coolest people of all time. And she is the biggest reason I not have, like, nine million breakdowns working on that book. It's so. a great team. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. And I'm excited because Henry Holt, I love you guys' imprint, too. Um, I know the big, 
Little Thieves, that was published under your imprint, right? It was. By Margaret. That was one of my top books of 2021. I love that book so much. We're working on a sequel now. I heard, I'm just like, I can, me and Molly were like friends on Facebook, not Facebook, on Twitter. And I'm like, so when ARCs are available, you know where I am, Molly. (laughs) So yeah, we definitely have some overlap here, Stephen. Yeah, this is really good. And this is the first time you two have ever met before, right? Yeah. Publishing is a small world, especially within the kids in YA sphere. Yeah, yeah there's not a lot of us. <laughs> have you have you ever met other Jet alums in the field? As writing or publishing? Not me, no. I do know a couple. Um, not all of them are as the most active of Jets. But yeah, I've met a couple. Like situations where you were talking to somebody as because they're in the publishing world and then after talking a little bit you go oh you're a gentleman too like that kind of a situation actually someone when i when i joined mcmillan five something years ago someone reached out to me to say that she was a former jet and she knew such and such and she had heard my name before just through the jet grapevine uh-huh. I, I once met, a, I, I used to work in bankruptcy law. <laughs> I know it's a real conversation killer, just to even mention the topic. And I was at a conference in Texas, and I, I felt very out of place. But I ended up chatting with this woman who was a clerk at the bankruptcy court in, in Brooklyn. So we were both actually from New York. And as we're talking for a little while, turns out she's a gentleman. So that was kind of exciting. That was an exciting moment to meet another bankruptcy law related jet alum in, a, in, in Texas of all places. But so it does happen. Okay, before we get back into the writing and the discussion of writing and publishing and, and, and jet stuff, I want to ask you guys be able to share just a, a short anecdote on the theme holy moly from your jet days, something that happened in your jet days that made you think, holy moly. Who would you like to go first? I was about to say you should go first. Okay. Okay. I have a whole bunch comes to mind, but I'm going to go with what was probably my first holy moly um, moment. So flashback, it is July 2017. No one has heard the word coronavirus in their life. And I am a new jet in Nomi City. And when I was coming, like my fellow ALTs, like they had warned me, they're like, oh, we're a very like Inaka kind of town. It's very small. People are very excited for you to come. And I was like, oh yeah, I grew up in like, Rural is suburb area. I grew up around lots of farms. Like, I'm prepared for this. I, I, I got this. So I arrived and I was not prepared for how big a deal a new, like, ALT's arrival is going to be because I love Nobisi with all my heart, but not too much happens over there. And the first moment I realized, like, holy moly, this is like, this is like something new for me as I was like my, maybe my third day in town. I was still getting acclimated to the neighborhood. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to try and walk to my grocery store. I need to like get to learn the path and I should go to the grocery store. So I just like walk out my door and I just go to the grocery store, right? And so I'm walking down there, rice fields everywhere, beautiful, beautiful day. And this car just drives up and they drive right past me just a little bit. And then they stop. And I'm like, and then they reverse in the road. And I'm like, Oh no, I've been in Japan like three days. Am I about to get snatched? I do not like this. They stop right near me. I'm ready to about to bolt. I'm like, oh my God. Oh my God. What do I do? Who do I call? Like, do I call my supervisor? This woman puts on her hazard side. She gets out of the car and she's like, 
are you the new English teacher? And I'm like, um, yeah. She's like, I heard about you on TV that you were coming. I was like, you did? And she's like, yes. And at that point, I was like ready to pee my pants. I'm like, oh, I'm like, at first from fear, then relief. I'm like, I'm not about to get kidnapped off the street. But I was just like, oh, wow. I did not realize that my arrival here was going to be this big a deal. And so to me, that was just a holy moly with me just, they when we were coming onto jet they're telling us about oh the impact we're gonna have on community community and like what you being there means to the people and like i was just like yeah yeah i get that that's all cool but i was like oh oh no they were they were serious about this and that's like just a running trend within my town i was asked to do lots of things for my town simply because i i low-key became like a local celebrity not because i actually did anything but just by like virtue of being new and so it was just a running trend. I'm like the closest I've ever been to being super famous in my life in one very <laughs> small town in Japan. <laughs> big in Japan. You're big in Japan. A small oh, corner. Thanks. Small oh, corner. A, right, right. Okay. Alexei, holy moly. Holy moly. I'm sorry that when you said that, the stories I thought of were, were not the cleanest. This is not a family show. This is just a show. Just a show, not a family show. <laughs> yeah. Because this also happened one of my my first days in Fukushima. Um, so it's 2001, August 2001. We're like maybe a week and a half out before September 11th happened, just to set the, the scene. And I came to Japan not knowing much Japanese. I was one of those. And one of the women, one of the other jets living in my building was an Australian. And this was her second year. And she invited a few of the new jet women to go on a gokon do those still exist do people know what a gokon is oh okay why don't you explain that yeah they got it yep (laughs) they got it (laughs) give it give a a brief explanation it's a group line date does that sum it up yeah nicely yeah so it's a group line date so it was a bunch of western women and japanese men the first place is they took us to the back room of an izakaya where I actually tried to sit next to the Australian woman for translating purposes because my Japanese was not so good, but they wouldn't let us. They made us sit man, woman, man, woman, man, woman. And I have very curly hair and midway through the meal, one of the men reaches over and grabs a lock of my hair and boings it and asks me if I'm extra curly down there. Whoa! <laughs> Holy moly. And I have the, Aust- no. the Wait, Australian- wait, no, Alexei, this was, I should have done the holy crap theme. That's a different theme than the holy moly. Oh my gosh. There's okay. more. <laughs> <laughs> so I tell the Australian woman, the one who organized it, that, you know, in, in Western cultures, you don't ask women questions like that so of course they ask her if she's extra blonde down there and then I wanted I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to leave but they said they had a second part of the gokon planned I don't know I was 22 and it, and I'd been in Japan like four days so you I went to, to the, gotta go with the flow I went with the flow they took us to a karaoke bar we had reserved the whole place it was one of those tiny intimate karaoke bars And I thought, well, at least if I sing, I don't have to talk to them. So I put on one of the only English songs they had, which was like a virgin, which (laughs) maybe should have been a sign. (laughs) But as I go to sing the song, 
the video behind the words was porn. The characters on the screen oh, yes. behind the words scrolling across were undressing. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. This is like so Sasuka. Japan. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was my holy moly. That was my karaoke board. Wow. Okay. Thanks. We're gonna have to create a new a new category of holy crap for 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 that story. <laughs> I'm sorry. If it's too dirty, I can think of something cleaner. <laughs> no. 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 This is perfect. This is this is exactly what this podcast needs. Because then I could wrap it back around to karaoke. One of my yeah. great loves. <laughs> right. Right. Yes, you did that very effectively. I still, and, I still love karaoke, just without that aspect of it. And I assume that's because, as a as a publishing editor, you have an excellent sense of narrative. One would hope so. I've been doing this <laughs> now for I think I'm on my fifteenth year now. So, so now let's go back to let's go back to the writing world. Uh, let's see what's how how did both of you get into writing, and does it does it intersect with Japan at all? Alexa, you want to start? Sure. When I came back from Japan, I still didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I thought, of course, being a famous writer was totally going to work out, right? I went and got an MFA in fiction at Brooklyn College. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. But at some point, realized that, oh, being a writer does not come with health insurance, and I want health insurance. So I kind of fell into my first publishing job and I realized I was actually good at that. I, you know, my first edit, editing job was very low level, you know, assistant level. And not only did I have health insurance, but I liked editing because I'm someone who likes doing puzzles. And I think to me, editing is kind of like doing a puzzle. You're taking the things that don't quite fit and you're making them work together and you polish. And I, I really enjoy doing that. I actually do get creative fulfillment out of fixing something. And I also know, and Rosie can probably speak to this, if you wanna be a professional writer, you have to have the thick skin to put up with all the rejections. You also have to be so disciplined and I realized I wasn't disciplined about writing the same way I was with editing. So it's something I got into by accident and ended up being, it ended up suiting me more. Rosie, do you, do you agree with, with her comments about needing a thick skin to be in writing? Oh, 100%. Like 100%. Because I think a lot of people with the rejection, they think like the obvious, like, oh, the rejection of like an agent or like an editor or not getting a book deal, which are all, don't get me wrong, but there's also even kinds of smaller rejection I didn't even think about that like you don't even realize, like the rejection of like not hitting a list you want to. I'm not even talking like the New York Times list. I'm talking like some random magazine you've never heard of puts out like their most anticipated books of that month. And then that moment you realize like you're not on that list. And even that, it's it sounds so small, but even small things like that, they get under your and it's just it's constantly stuff like that. So I definitely agree with you that the thick skin is something you gotta develop. For me, so I was in a similar boat where um so I actually had not planned to be like a writer full time. I went to school for journalism actually. Okay, wait. So journalism is writing. I had not planned to be a creative writer full time. I had gone to school for journalism and I was planning to enter like media journalism. 
I had interned at Voice of America while in college. But then after when I was looking for my first job post-college, I had also gotten a Japanese minor. And then like I had this kind of one of those whim moments where I'm like, I could keep applying to like media jobs or I could apply to this jet program and see if I get in. I got in and that kind of like split the path of my life right there. And so writing was something I'd always done creatively, was something I'd done on the side. And so with race, I actually had started writing it while I was in college, mostly for fun. And I wasn't until later in 2017, I applied for the mentorship um, program Pitch Wars. And I submitted the book to Pitch Wars and I got in. And my mentor was like, yeah, we can work on this. You should submit it to agents. You can do this. And so for the majority of my jet career, I was writing, like I was, at the day doing my ALT job and at night, like furiously revising my novel until it sold in 2018. And then when I came back from JET in 2019, right before the pandemic, my original plan was like, okay, let me take a little bit of time, like to just recoup after Japan. And then let me find another job. And I'll keep writing on the side. And then the pandemic happened and that didn't happen. And so since then I've been writing full time and it's, it was never the plan, but like, it's, it's been working pretty well for me so far. So fingers crossed it continues to work for as long as I need it to work. When you say it's, it's been working for you, in what way is it? do you feel like it's working? What are it's some working of the things a, that, that surprised you or surpassed your expectations? I guess because I just sort of always understood from a young age is like writing is not something you get into if you want to support yourself, at least creative writing. Like, so for my plan had always been like, oh, I want to be like a journalist at like a publication. So health insurance benefits would love some of those. Um, and like, or I'd also, I really did like teaching a lot too. So I considered coming back and like teaching maybe creative writing or teaching and just keep writing on the side. Like it was, it was never my plan that writing would be my primary source of income, but I'm very lucky and grateful that like with my first series and how well the reception has been and some other sales I've been able to make since. I've been able to support myself fully on my novels for the last couple of years. And so that is a big, big surprise to me because that's not always guaranteed. And there's authors whose work I admire so much who have been in this business way longer than I have who aren't at that stage yet. And so it's, there's never a guarantee you'll get there or even once you get there, you'll stay there. So I always count my blessings that like I'm in a position right now where I can focus on just writing and it's enough to like meet all my needs at the moment. I, I've always thought that the JET Alumni Association should somehow figure out a way to offer healthcare insurance to, to its members. Please. <laughs> like, that would, especially since it's, it's become such a more of a, of a gig economy and you just can't, you know, you can't depend on an employer anymore. And it just doesn't make sense economically to have a system where insurance is dependent on an employer. And so mm-hmm. alumni organizations, I think, are sort of somewhat well positioned to do that. Of course, we're, we're JET alumni, we're a volunteer alumni association. So I don't know how exactly that happens, but how cool would that be, right? Then we'd have a lot of people, even more people becoming members. <laughs> we did that. Anyway, so Alexei, it seemed like you were gonna ask something or you had a thought. I was just gonna say, because I know how hard it is to make a full-time living writing novels, that's an amazing accomplishment. Be really proud of yourself. So many of our authors are also teachers who write during summers, that sort of thing. So the fact that you can do it full-time, Rosie, that's amazing. Thank you. I I remember that because those first two years, because the book sold 2018, so I was still in Ishikawa, and then 
it came out 2020, but like that year where I was working on it and still juggling the ALT job, that was, that was rough. Like I look back on that and like my friends who are still currently like juggling the full-time job in the writing right now, I'm like, uh, and sometimes it feels like we're doing different, like, well, we are doing different jobs, but like, it just feels like it's amazing because readers, they just see the final finished product. Right. And like, sometimes I'll look at a book and I'll be like, oh, I know she wrote that on top of like a full-time job, taking care of four kids, taking care of her ailing parents. Like, and it just, makes the experience of reading the book so much richer just knowing what the author went through to like even make it happen it really does and also just the the number of people that go into the making of the book so it's mm -hmm. not just you submit your manuscript there's then a whole slew of things that have that happen after you submit the manuscript mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so so true like my teams at like the houses I've worked with they are just they are the best and just knowing how like burnt out everyone is in the industry and the seeing people still like show up and still try and give their all to authors and give their all to these projects oof, I just have so much respect for all of them that's nice uh, to hear years ago I did a a jet alum authors event in New York where we got Roland Keltz who had written Japan America and has become sort of a big commentator on Japan, U.S. pop culture. And James Kennedy, who had written a, a young adult novel called The Order of Oddfish. Alexei, did you ever read that? Yeah. Really? Oh, it a really... while ago. Yeah. I read, Do you know it? I, yeah, I read that as a kid, actually. Really? Oh, oh my yeah. God. So, so you didn't even know he was a gentleman? No. Yes, and he was hilarious in person too. He does a lot of improv comedy and stuff. And he just had a, a novel, another novel come out, an adult, not an adult novel, but an, a, a novel for adults. <laughs> Nothing like in the karaoke video that, that traumatized Alexa. <laughs> and, and another guy, Rob Weston, who I think is now living in Toronto, who wrote a rhyme, who wrote a book called Zorga Mazoo, which is a rhyming novel. And so the three of the, and then it was moderated by Randall David Cook, who is a gentleman playwright in New York who, who wrote um, uh, Sake with the Haiku Geisha, which I think a lot of us went and saw at some point. Um, yeah, I remember and that. They, yeah, and they talked a lot about what it, what it is, you know, being sort of the, the, the work of being an author. And one of the things they talked about at the time was how there was a shift where authors were expected to do more of their own self-promotion. And I think this was kind of pre-Twitter. I forget if Facebook was sort of happening, but blogs were, blogs were kind of a big thing at the time. But from each of your perspective, how, how do you see the, the role that authors are sort of expected to play or writers expected to play in promoting their own work? <laughs> oh, sorry. Should I rephrase that? Maybe, maybe I phrased that too heavily. No. Right. It's, what what it's, examples do you, or what? I think, wait, let me try I this think again. Rosie can speak to that better than I can because as a managing editor, I don't do much in the publicity or marketing side besides sometimes fix their typos. But you, but you see them, I mean, you see the authors and the process they need to do to, yeah. you, you, you experience a lot of authors and what they need to do from the publishing side in terms of promoting their own work. Yeah, I, um, 
Yeah, I still would. I I think Rosie would be better equipped. To <laughs> okay. Okay. So it's definitely this is. I feel like this is one. Okay. So I want to preface this with I've only been published in the pandemic, so I don't like I don't have the experience of what it was like pre summer twenty twenty to publish a book. Unfortunately, so I this is coming from the scope. Fortunately, for that matter, you're 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 you know it's there's pros and cons. Strange, of yeah, you're like, like a digital native. But like, so definitely the big thing that has been for me is like the fact that up until maybe a couple months ago, even honestly still till now, all sort of promo publicity was online. And so like everything like to push your book, to push yourself, to push your quote unquote brand had to happen online. And that has been, definitely it has taken a lot of creativity to like make that work, especially because it's not even just, oh, all of book publicity has had to move online. It's like everyone's everything had to move online. So you're trying to like fight for like space and like fight to be visibility when people aren't, you're not even just up against like every other book that's like coming out at that time that you're trying also like trying to get attention because they also want to get readers. You're just dealing with like everyone's everything. Like people were zoomed out, like when virtual events were happening and people were zoomed out because like, they might like you, they might like your book, but they've just been on four hour Zooms with their grandmas and then with their like work and then with their toddler's preschool teacher. And like just every, it was just so, it felt like honestly kind of dropping into a Thunderdome. And it's like, it's not even just, oh, you're competing against other books or whatever. It's like, you're competing against the entire world to convince them in this one space where everyone is doing everything. Hey, why don't you check out my book? <laughs> so it was a lot, I'm not gonna lie. It, it was not always easy. And it was not always the most fun, I will say, simply because I know most writers myself, like, we're in it for the writing. Like, that is the thing for me that, like, gets me up in the morning. And that's the thing I love most about it. And marketing does not come easily. And so the people at the houses who, like, devote themselves to that, they are way better at it than I am. And they have way more resources. So it's definitely come a situation where unfortunately it's an author's own best interest to have a active social media presence somewhere but it's not always sometimes it feels like uh, I'm trying to figure out how to word this in the best way it's like sometimes it feels like it can almost get in the way of the work because I know so many friends who'll be like oh I have this deadline or this thing to work on but I need to post on Instagram or I have to film a new TikTok or I have to do all this XYZ stuff that can help you like I know some people say social media doesn't sell books. That has not been my experience personally, simply because my like social media is a big part of why rates did as well as it's done. And like the buzz it had on social media and the readers reaching out to other readers and stuff. So like, I can't say social media does not make a difference. I can't even I, say I that just, I haven't. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I just heard about TikTok book reviews is a thing now. Book oh yeah, talk. book talk is big. Yep, book, book talk. Yeah. Book talk is huge. Like, it's, yeah, it's, it, it's raised sales of books from like 20,000 a year to like several hundred thousand a year. It, it's literally for some books, it's in the millions. Like it is a book talk is a whole different ball game, but like just, so like, it's definitely necessary. And, but at the same time, well, I don't even want to say necessary. Cause like there are also authors who don't do social media and they're fine, but it's just simply like, it's, it's, you can be an author and not be on social media, but you are sort of turning away from a very valuable tool for you as an author but it's also a variable valuable tool that can also turn on you very quickly oh i was gonna mm -hmm. say you're you're describing 
something I've noticed in my own career journey, which is, and not just for me, but for, I think most people, which is there's the job that you want to do, the thing you want to mm -hmm. do. And then depending on the job, there's all the other things you end up having to do to do that job, whether it's doing a job or, you know, you want to start a company where you do X, but then you really end up spending a lot more time doing all these other things rather than the and I was going to ask you guys how much, you know, in, in Alexei and publishing, do you feel like you get to do the X that you signed up to do? Or do you feel like there's a lot of other stuff? I was also thinking of the example of so many teachers I know love the teaching aspect, but they hate how much paperwork exactly. they end up doing off hours. Yeah, I mean, for me... Honestly, I'm in it for the editing. I'm actually a, a manager now because frankly, managing pays more. <laughs> it's it's as simple as that. I'm in the lucky position where I get to do, still get to do some editing so I can remind myself of why I got into this in the first place. But yeah, and the other thing about being a managing editor is that you're not going to love every book you work on because that's the nature of the beast. You work on all of them. You can work on one of the best books of all time. You can work on something you secretly loathe. As long as you don't say it publicly, it's fine. But it will, it will happen. So the managing editor is managing other editors. Yes. The managing editor does not acquire. The managing editor takes, uh, works with a production editorial team. And we're the ones who polish the books and get them out to press. We do all the copy editing and the proofreading. We're the ones who will do, let's say, liaise. Got to use a work word there. <laughs> and we get to liaise between pretty much all the departments. We talk with the, the editors who work in acquisitions. We work with design. We work with production. So yeah, I, I kind of have a hand in everything that's going on. So naturally, there are going to be things that are not my favorite part of the job. Uh -huh. So there's, there's the managing people and the project management aspect of, of the role becomes bigger yes. than the actual editing, but you also still do a certain amount of editing. Yes. I would be sad if I gave that up because that is, of course, the best part of the job. Yeah, it's the same thing in teaching, I mean, or, or ESL or other teaching, you could be doing... You can, you can teach a lot, but then you don't get the job security and the higher pay. You have to run a program and then you're doing less teaching. And then, and for Rosie, for you, how much, how much time do you have to spend on the marketing and social media compared to like, in terms of sort of from a ratio perspective, in terms of the actual writing that you want to be doing? Oof. It's, I think that's one of those things that there's going to sound like a cop-out answer, but the truth is it fluctuates because like the deadlines are priority like the actual getting the work done and getting it out is priority so like this week i've had a deadline on path pages for my middle grade so i like say bless you and all the other managing editors who keep all that straight because <laughs> i'm looking at this i'm just like they are catching keep, some things that would i keep someone like rosie on track basically yeah, uh -huh. yeah. yeah. and y'all also keep me from making some very stupid mistake like she raised all three of her hands or something like that but um, <laughs> <laughs> it's true so, but so, yeah, so like this week where this is due tomorrow as of when I'm recording this, um, like all, it's been writing all week and like everything else has fallen to wayside. I owe so many people emails and stuff. But like you... on, on like for next week where I'm not like on an active, active deadline, I have some stuff that's going to be due in a couple weeks, but it doesn't feel real to my brain yet. 
Like it's gonna be mostly admin. It's gonna be mostly checking with my editor, with my agent. It's gonna be posting Twitter. It's gonna be like setting up my posts and things. And so on those days, it can be hours of me planning content and having it ready and making sure it's good to go. I have a, it's nowadays, it's more common that your um, publishers will ask you to record videos and things. So I have whole days where I just sit and I'll just record videos. I'll literally swap different outfits out. So it looks like I recorded them on different days wow. and then I'll post them when it's needed just because like, it's easier than like, cause as anyone who's ever tried to record a video and it's like not their job knows, it takes you a long time. So yeah, it's more efficient for I me. avoid video. That's why I do a podcast. Exactly. So it's more efficient to have a video day. And I know lots of authors who do this. This is not like an industry secret. Like they'll have just a video day. They will record their TikToks, their like IG reels, like whatever they need to do. They'll record that all. And then they'll blast them out until the next video day. Like it's, it, it, it's a lot. Like it's really, really a lot. But it's also kind of what is... It kind of what it just the way things are at the moment and with the current landscape and things might change as stuff opens up more, but unfortunately right now like online is the only real space for authors to kind of really engage and chat about their work and so there's that feeling like yeah I don't have to do this but at the same time like if there's something I could have done that could have helped my book why well, regret not doing it like that seems to be the kind of vibe around the authors I talk to about like how we feel about the amount of promo and publicity we have to do. It's like a technically we don't have to, but we definitely feel like if we don't do we're we're missing out if we don't do like at least we don't do something. Like you, you can't do everything. No one can do everything. I don't really like to do TikTok myself, but like everyone feels like they have to do something, you know. I will say as someone who does sit in acquisitions meetings they definitely bring up the social media followings of especially debut authors. You know, we're thinking about taking on this book. She already has, you know, 300,000 book talk followers. Wow. Um, and that can definitely make a difference if they're, if they're looking to buy your book or not. So a lot of JET alumni end up working as translators. And I think something in the back of, of any translator's mind these days is, is artificial intelligence going to replace me? Do you do either of you have any fears that artificial intelligence might eventually do your jobs? Honestly, let them go ahead. If an AI can write these books for me, all the power to it. <laughs> all the power to it. You know what? No, because we've had spell check for years, right? And yeah. spell check doesn't understand nuance. It doesn't understand <laughs> idioms. So yeah, there's always going to be a human need to, to make art. Yeah. And it doesn't always understand spelling. Now, stepping back and thinking about your Japan experiences, is there anything in your current work or in the way that you work or your, the way you deal with writing and editing that, that you think connects with things that you maybe learned or thought about or figured out through your through living in Japan? Is that too deep a question? Is that too esoteric? I can totally cut that, that question out. I'm gonna have to think about that a little, a little Yeah, bit. I realized I'm like, I just gave them a thought question right in the middle <laughs> of a podcast episode. That's not, the, that's not good interviewing. Okay, let me try to rephrase this. I wanna, okay. I wanna just, um, so, so thinking back to your Japan and your jet experiences, is there anything from your from your Japan experience 
that you sort of bring with you today still that maybe helps you in your in your current work or or kind of stays with you or has affected you in some way yeah oh okay yes i have an answer for that one i think this this people this tends to surprise people because it's not like the sexiest thing people would expect but being a jet and just in general being someone in a situation where like resources and things were hard to access it taught me how to advocate for myself in a way that like has really helped me in my author career because like when I was in Japan like if I was having an issue like Claire bless them Claire does their best to like try and be a resource but because as we know every situation is different um it's very difficult like in one like just on your day-to-day life if something goes wrong unfortunately Claire was not always the best resource to help right and so like and even in my town where like I had a couple other ALTs but they weren't always available to help so it's very much here I am in a foreign language, a foreign country, sorry. Here I am in a foreign country. I barely speak the language. And suddenly it's like, I have to go out, figure out, go to a doctor. I have to figure out how to explain to him what like my issues are and how he can help me in a language, like with this language barrier. I have to figure out how to like pay my car insurance, like all this stuff, something needs to be done. And I was someone who before going to jet, I was super, very shy. Like if I was having a problem, rather than like try and deal with it, I would just sit until I died. Like I would just be like, well, my bones are broken, just I'm just gonna live with this, I guess. Hang on. And then Japan, that was not an option because then it was very much literally deal with this or you might actually die. And so I really got good at advocating for myself and like fighting for my needs and being able to say, hey, this is what I need in this moment. This is what's going on. Like simply because like there was no one else who literally could advocate for me like then. And so as an author, that has become such a good skill to be able to say like, hey, this is how I feel about the book. I know, like, you guys have, like, your agenda and, like, the things you need to accomplish, but, like, this is what's really important to me. This is what I, when we're um, doing the marketing, this is what would really mean a lot for me to, like, for you to highlight. These are the parts of the book that, like, oh, I'm willing to change. This is the part that, like, for cultural reasons or for whatever that's very important to me does not get touched. Like, those sorts of things. Like, conversations that they're not always fun because, like, it's not always fun to roses, but they're very necessary. And, like, I've never had any, like, anyone, any house react super negatively to anything like that. But I look back and I'm like, hmm, if I hadn't had the dead experience to really learn to, like, stand up for, like, myself, like, I think I would have gone into a lot of these conversations much differently. And it would have definitely affected not only my work, but just the way I view myself as an author. Oh, that's good. That's a really good takeaway to have. Uh, and you're right, not the, not the one you'd expect or, or, or you know, that you... I mean, for me, it was learning to think about people from different perspectives and, 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 you know, grade my language and stuff, but I, I'm an, I'm an English language teacher in part now. So that's a, that's a more direct connection. So that's really neat to hear. Actually, Stephen, I will piggyback off your answer in that, you know, I was quite young when I, when I did JET and I had traveled, but I hadn't been in a place where the majority of people weren't white. This was my first time living in an area where most people were not white. And what it taught me was seeing things from a different perspective or world broadening. And I know that's a cliche, but it's also true. A big part of my job is we also look out for either sensitivity or authenticity readers which are being hired more and more now for books. And that so, could be a whole different conversation. 
sensitivity or authenticity readers? Say more about that. Yes. A sensitivity or an authenticity reader. Say you're writing a book where a character, say, is on the autism spectrum, but the auth but you yourself as an author does not have autism. We would hire somebody who is a sensitivity reader who claims to be on the autism spectrum themselves, claims that identity, and they would actually read your book from a sensitivity perspective and, and point out anything that might be a red flag, anything that seems inauthentic. So a part of my job is to look out for things, uh, look out for sexism, racism, homophobia, things that are ableist, and I had never really thought much beyond my somewhat cloistered suburban kid experience until I went to Japan. So it really was an eye opener and like, oh wait, so many people could be in the exact same situation as me, me and react completely differently. And now I have to do the same with the books that I manage make sure that it is sensitive and authentic to any specific position or point of view. I'm glad you brought that up, Alexia, because like the, just real quick on authenticity sensitivity readers, I've worked with them on all of my books and like, it's definitely, it feels like it's something that people see as such a negative thing. Like, oh, these people are gonna tell you how to write your book. When from my, my experience, it's oh. definitely been like, yeah, it's definitely been like, these people, we all want the same thing. We wanna put out the best, most respectful book we can. And so like, I feel like the general public, they hear that they're like, authors are being censored. I'm like, well, authors are being censored in certain ways, but that's actually not really one of them. So I'm glad to like hear from your side, like what the experience has been like, because I've had a very possible, uh, positive experience working with them. But, I love um, a good authenticity or sensitivity reader. They can really aid a book in such tremendous ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I can't speak to when I'm working on literally hundreds of books at a time, I can't pretend to speak for somebody who's, say, asexual or someone who's a different race or, or any number of things. So uh, sensitivity and authenticity readers are definitely an asset. I hope people don't see them as, as censorship. I definitely think it's, 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 I've seen that point of view more from people not in the industry. I think most authors, like, get it. And people who are not in the industry, they... They, they very much I think because the general public doesn't understand like you mentioned how many people are involved in even one book's production so they yeah. see that someone coming in and telling you you can't write about this when that's obviously we know that's not the case so no it's just more like if yeah. if, if there's a character who's a wheelchair user the author's not a wheelchair user yeah. I'm not a wheelchair user let's get someone who is yeah I was never familiar with this, this concept of sensitivity readers or authenticity readers. And from my perspective, I'm thinking about it from the Jetwit jobs angle. And I didn't realize there's jobs out there for people like that. <laughs> so maybe there's some Jet alums who, who, who don't know what their, you know what their skill is or what their superpower is. How, how does one become a sensitivity or, or authenticity reader? That is an excellent question. <laughs> I'm not one, I could probably provide info for those who have done it, but I, I would say to start, think about, think about something that maybe has not been seen as an asset to your life. Say you are on the autism spectrum, use this to your advantage. Something you might maybe have been told, unfortunately could hinder you. We want that. Mm -hmm. 
I, I hope you see, I hope that we can use it as, as a positive. So I would, I would, there are plenty of them online. You can Google authenticity or sensitivity reader and maybe reach out to some of the uh, more prominent ones. But there are people who make their living doing that, including some full-time authors actually make some money on the side as authenticity readers. Oh, so it might be people who are already in writing or publishing. It's definitely then, more of a gig job. Yeah. Okay. You'll be paid per book. Now, as we start wrapping up this episode, I want to ask you about an example or a story of kindness from your days in Japan. Rosie, do you have an anecdote or a story you'd want to share? Yes, this is probably one of my favorite moments. So it was the school festival for one of my junior high schools. And I remember that day, I wasn't even feeling that well. Like I was super like feverish and stuff, which looking it's so weird saying that in 2022 because now obviously like anyone feels a hint of like sickness like we stay home but at the time like I'd still come into work and like I literally had like my jacket on and my mask and everything and like even though it was a school festival and everyone had worked so hard the kids had worked so hard I was just like why am I here I want to go home I don't feel well so I was just very much not in the school festival kind of mood and so we're in the auditorium and the kids are giving the performance and I'm like zoned out because I'm just like can I go home and then at one moment, like I open my eyes and the kids are running to me. I'm like, oh gosh, what what did I do? Did they did I actually say that out loud? And also in Japanese, and everyone heard me. <laughs> like, and they're like, Rosie Sensei, Rosie Sensei, come, come. And like they pulled me onto the stage. And apparently what had happened was the kids had been told to bring their favorite thing onto the stage. And they had brought me on stage. And I was oh like, my god. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> started oh, crying the other teachers yeah. were like we are so bad that they <laughs> and I'm like oh and I look back it's such a small moment but I just like look back on that because like I know lots of this is not this is probably true for every job but I know lots of jets um and ALTs we always talk about we don't know if we're making a difference or if like we're actually some of the more frustrating parts of the job and just so seeing that like I had actually had an impact on the kids to the point that like they had made me their favorite part of the school year experience I just like that is it started off as like I was such a, re- a boring sick day and it's not one of my absolute favorite days I had in Japan. Uh. That's such a sweet story. <laughs> just a, again another like mundane kind of day story. Um, do you remember the rainy season there? I mean mm-hmm. when it rained there it rained Yeah. and I didn't have a car and I would always bike to either the train or to the bus station. And just one day on my way to the train station, I mean, I was drenched head to toe. Everything I owned was soaking wet. There was no getting around it. It was one of those horizontal rains. (laughs) And I show up at the school looking like a plucked chicken. I mean, I just look look ridiculous. And there's no way I can teach being so wet and people banded together and I was able to put an outfit together a a dry outfit just from spare clothes people had lying around they weren't you know they they weren't their nice work clothes they were like their sweats they used to clean up the school afterward but still I got to go ahead with my normal day teaching without picking and picking at my wet clothes and dripping all over the school 
So I just remember the kindness of everyone pooling together whatever extra clothes they mm -hmm. had around so I could have a normal day teaching. Mm -hmm. That's nice. I, I feel like there's been so many kindnesses done to so many of us on, who went on JET or anybody who went to Japan. And, and I think everybody sort of feels they want to pay it forward in other parts of their lives as they go on. So thanks for sharing that. And now as we wrap up, I just wanted to ask about a couple of things. If you guys could share a little bit, Alexei, I know you've been very involved in the Jetta New York book club with Christy Jones for many years, right? I Can have, you say a little bit about that? And I know other chapters have book clubs and I think US Jetta even started sort of a general national kind of book club for anybody who wants to connect that way. Can you talk about some of the things uh, you guys have done with the book club? Yeah, of course. I was more active pre-COVID. But before COVID, when we used to meet in person, actually, one of the biggest successes is when we all read the book Pachinko, which is, of course, now yeah. a series. Yeah, I just saw that. So everyone at that book club can now say, well, I read the book first. And the book's always better, right? Yeah. <laughs> but we've done a lot of interesting books. They wouldn't be ones I would automatically read on my own. Let's put it that way. You know, um, I'm kind of, when I read on my own time, I could be kind of a literature snob, admittedly. So something like Pachinko is up my alley, but we've read other things like more genre murder mystery kind of things. And it's nice for me to read something I wouldn't ordinarily have read and actually enjoyed them. So I need to put my snobbery aside. Yeah, I remember I went to some book club meetings. I was dying to go to them, but I didn't have time to read the book. So I just read some Amazon reviews <laughs> and went <laughs> and I still had such a good time. And I learned about, you know, I got to hear, hear you and other people talk about the books and I knew enough just to, just <laughs> I was that guy. I was that guy. an important thing? What? In, in the Jatani book club, we actually talk about the books. I've been in other book clubs where people just want to gossip. No, right. we talk about the book. Yes, excellent. A, a great plug for the Jatani book club. And Rosie, can you tell us a little bit about, you have a website and some social media channels that might be helpful for people who want to learn more? Oh yeah, definitely. So I'm most active on um. Twitter and Instagram. I have a TikTok, but I'm not as active there. And the handle is the same across all three platforms. My handle is Rosie's Rambles. So that's R-O-S-I-E-S Rambles, all one word. I'm not Rosie Rambles. That's someone else. Y'all keep tagging her about my book. I don't think she likes it. So no, it's not Rosie Rambles. <laughs> okay. um, and this will all be in the show notes. We'll, we'll put all of this in the show notes. Yes. And so that's the best way, the most updated. I do have a website. It's rosannebrown.com. I'm currently updating it. So it's kind of under construction at the moment, but that is the best way. If anyone wants to contact me, the contact form there is the best way to reach me. Uh, and so, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks guys. Thanks so much for, for taking time out of your day to, to talk. And, and I was also, I'm also glad that I got to introduce you to each other as well. It's always nice to get jets together. Um, yeah. Thank you. Okay, and everybody, thanks for listening and see you next time on the Jettosphere. Thank you for listening to the Jettosphere podcast, a production of jetwit.com. 
Special thanks to USJAA and Claire for their support.